you know, like there, there definitely was a moment during the week where I thought, oh, now I have something to say on the podcast about <laughs> this, whatever it was. And then I've subsequently forgotten it. Obviously, it wasn't like a huge deal. <laughs> no. Like, it's like maybe I could get a few lines out of this, but no. How's work? It's fine. With your little uh, Aryan kids. It's fine. I'm prompting you. I'm prompting you like a talk show. Okay, I'll tell this story because you so want me to tell it. Which is that I work at a day camp. Well, listeners may not be aware of this for children. And Is it a day camp? Yeah. Okay. What does that actually mean? It means they come for a couple of hours when they would normally have school. Like, people who are have some money... And want their kids to be out of the house for the summer. Send their kids to camp during the day. It's usually younger kids because, you know, older kids will go to overnight camps. This is like an urban camp. Yeah. Okay. In a basement. An urban camp. Do you do, like, camp-like activities? No, it's like a science camp. So we do, like, science activities. Ah, uh, like, okay, those sort of camps. Yeah, we yeah. Do, and they do, like, 3D printing and stuff like that. That's what I've been doing a lot of, actually, recently. Oh, wow. Yeah. How old are these kids? Uh, it ranges anywhere from like 5 to 10 or 11. So, lar- large swath of ages. Hmm. But anyway, so, um, I did this, do this, do this camp. That's, that's where I work. That's how I make my bread. And, uh, I was sitting, we went, to, we go to the park every day for about 20 minutes, or not 20 minutes, for about an hour or two hours, depending <laughs> I was sitting there just minding my own business when uh, suddenly a little boy named uh, Marshall, who's a adorable little child, kind of spacey, but a very nice, respectful kid, walked up to me with two African-American children behind him. We're also part of the camp. It wasn't just like two random African-American children that he had found. Okay. And he was like... But they're not deserving of, of a name like he is. Uh, they were <laughs> Julia and Dominic. Thank you. Uh, now I can uncheck that racist mark on my ID. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, they walked up. They were getting some water. And I was like, so, uh, Marshall, Dominic, Julia, what are you guys playing? And Marshall, who must be said, is a blonde Aryan child. <laughs> he has mm-hmm. blonde hair, blue eyes. Looks like he'd be on a propaganda poster, basically. Does he have like a Scandinavian surname, or you, or you don't? I don't know. know beyond I don't know his surname. Okay, all right. Look it up for next episode. We'll do. Yeah, yeah. That'll be the throwing conclusion to the story. Uh, he's mm. he's going to be there tomorrow, so. Marshall Hitler. Yep. <laughs> um, and he was. I was like, "What are you guys playing?" And Marshall said, "Oh, I'm the owner, and these are my pets." <laughs> and they ran off, and that's it. So a moment of. Uh, Racial discontent, let's say. So, essentially, the moral of the story is that you had an opportunity to influence yeah. a future racist. And you know what I did? Nothing. I let it go. Anyway, that's it. Uh, what are we talking about? Movies. Today on the podcast, uh, which is called Project A+, we will be discussing the films. And I, I do not use that term lightly. These are films. Murder Mystery from Netflix and Adam Sandler. And from Martin Scorsese, Rolling Thunder Review, colon, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese. You want to get to it? Do you have any other fucking horse shit you want to talk about beforehand? 
Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Oh, yeah, I, I remember the thing I was going to talk about that happened to oh, me. Oh god. Oh, what was it? I noticed like a rash <laughs> on my inner upper thigh. It's probably cancerous. And I sort of started to spread a little bit. Oh. <laughs> That's Is that it? it? <laughs> yeah. Do you get any, are you going to go get it checked out or? No, no I didn't do that. Can't you do it for free or? Yeah, yeah. I'm taking for granted universal health care. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't want to go to the doctor and I have to pay for it, so. I mean, I have to pay something, but it's not very much. <laughs> All right, so shall we get on with the shit show? Yeah, let's get on with the very shit show. Uh, what movie should we do first? Uh, let's do murder mystery first. It's a murder mystery, a murder mystery. Who killed cinema? Adam Sandler did. It's a murder mystery, it's a murder mystery. Who killed Adam Sandler? The cinema did. It's a murder mystery, it's a murder mystery. Who killed cinema? Adam Sandler did. Okay, that's it. Uh, would you like me to, to synopsize murder mystery in my best Adam Sandler voice? No, just, just synopsize a murder mystery and then we can stop talking about it. Fine, and then I can do my Chandler voice. Yeah. Just promise me that. Otherwise, I will have no joy in this conversation. <laughs> I promise you that you can do it. Okay, good. Okay, so Murder Mystery is the latest in a series of Netflix-commissioned Adam Sandler vehicles, although its script was originally slated for production as far back as 2012. Oh, Jesus Christ. Directed by Workaholics co-creator and uh, Adam Devine pal Kyle Newichek. Newichek? Newichek. Uh, I don't know. Murder Mystery follows an ordinary New York couple, Nick and Audrey Spitz as they embark on a long overdue honeymoon to Europe. Nick, an Adam Sandler type, uncannily inhabited by Sandler himself, is a middling police officer who aspires to be a detective, while Aubrey, Audrey? Well, Audrey, Audrey, Jennifer Aniston, is a hairdresser with a fondness for murder mysteries. Yep. Their stagnant middle-class existence is unexpectedly enlivened when they come into contact with a wealthy aristocrat, Charles Cavendish, who invites them to attend a party aboard his family's luxury yacht. When Cavendish's cashed-up uncle is murdered mid-voyage, the hapless Spitzers find themselves embroiled in a sinister inheritance plot, seemingly ripped from the pages of an Agatha Christie novel. Mm. With a French detective on their tail and a boatload of credible suspects to investigate, Nick and Audrey must race to crack the case and ultimately prove their innocence the real mystery however is what my gallant co-host made of this self-reflexive murder romp from our friends at netflix Mm -hmm. and happy madison productions uh uh. (laughs) yeah that's fair you know you know what it wasn't as bad as i thought it was gonna be interesting i thought it was gonna be like you know i feel like when you go into an out of sale movie you're expecting like some racist humor some homophobic humor you don't really get that as much here. That's true. That is true. So that's what I mean. It wasn't as bad as I thought, but it was really forgettable and not funny, and I was bored the entire time. So, uh, so guess who the murderer was within twenty minutes? So basically, you're saying on the on the positive front for this movie, it it wasn't racist or homophobic. Yeah. That's that's its positive qualities. <laughs> Fair enough. That's. A high bar to clear. Which is, which is, I expected it to be that. I just want to make that clear. So okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, well, once again, we are we are somewhat on the same page because I didn't 
hate it. No. But, uh, you know what? I almost worse than hated it. I just felt nothing towards this movie. I'll, I'll, you know, two weeks from now, I will have forgot that I ever watched it. It just took an hour and a half out of my life that I'm never going to get back. And that makes me kind of angry. But besides that... This is a curious project, I think. A+. plus. On the one hand, it's, it's classic San Lafayre, at least classic modern-day San Lafayre. Yeah, it's set in a foreign location. Yep, the plot is centered around this exotic location. Yeah. Sandler gets to wear shorts and a t-shirt for yep. most of the film, which is his standard wardrobe. It, it, is, it has stepped out. He seems to have decided not to shave, too. <laughs> and the character he plays fits comfortably within this established Adam Sandler persona. I mean, it's a little bit toned down. Like, he doesn't do his characteristic uh, fit of rage here. There's no baby voice. But otherwise, it's 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 pretty much the same. In fact, it almost seems like he did not want to be in this movie. <laughs> he, see, he seems so asleep. He's barely there. Which is somewhat fitting, because he, him as a character is supposed to be sort of not really there either. Yeah. Maybe that was just a genius bit of acting. But, like, whereas some of those other... Uh, Sandler films uh, are kind of characterized by these loose, shaggy plots. Yeah, I mean they they barely qualify as as plots. Like let's say Grown Ups, where the the premise is let's go to a beach house, exactly, or a lake house rather. Here we have a conventional, albeit self conscious, murder mystery. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing is that the 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 genre requirements for this type of murder mystery are a little bit too involved. To give you the same feeling that you get from those other Sandler films, which is, as you said, the whole production is is a pretext for a holiday. Yeah. Like, I mean, that at least, I mean, this could have still been a pretext for a holiday. He could have just booked extra time in wherever they were filming or whatever. Italy, it seemed, in Montreal. But at least they had to work a little harder for it, you know. Like, they had to stage actual action sequences. Yes. And there's definitely evidence of improvisation I think especially with uh, Sandler and Aniston's dialogue. But it feels subordinate to the plot and reasonably contained, at least in comparison to some of those other films which feel mostly improvised. Yeah. Even if they weren't. It's just the writing is so sloppy that it may as well have been improvised. Um, but, I mean, the, the laziness is still here in this production, in the characterization, in the jokes. Mm-hmm. But it is butting up against this murder mystery and it's kind of an odd combination i think um it's not an interesting murder mystery like you said you picked the killer pretty easily it's pretty obvious so yeah it's not an interesting murder mystery and the fact that they do it really self-consciously does not like alleviate that issue no it's like it's a little like the deadpool syndrome pointing to the fact that it's that it's ripped out of the pages of a formerly like mystery novel does not change the fact that it is in fact a formerly mystery novel so Exactly. Like it's not it's not incorporating murder mystery tropes in order to subvert them in some way or do something inventive with them. No. It's basically content to place quotation marks around the cliches and hope that I guess Sandler's presence carries the day. Yeah, which it does not. <laughs> but they did not stop from uh, apparently thirty million people watching this film. Oh Jesus, this really? Weekend. Yeah. They released that, that is what okay. Netflix released. Who knows how accurate it is, uh, but that is what they have said. But again, like, despite all this, like, I, I didn't hate it. And in contrast to you, it kind of was exactly what I expected it to be for some reason. Mm, that's funny. 
Because it's a film that answers the question, what if a shitty Adam Sandler movie had a murder mystery in it? And it's exactly <laughs> that. It's like nothing more. It's just like, yeah. it's exactly those things together. <laughs> and there was something kind of weirdly enjoyable about that, albeit moderately so. <laughs> That's funny. I don't know why. Um, I was maybe maybe I was swayed by my delicious cheese and mustard sandwiches, <laughs> which I was in, which I was uh, tucking into while watching this. But who knows? Um, so on, on the performance front, I think Jennifer Aniston is is fine. I think she handles the the material pretty well. Sandler is atrocious. Yep, Sandler, as I said, looks like he's asleep. I made a joke on Twitter. Or it seemed like I said that it seemed like he had dementia because he doesn't seem to know what's happening. <laughs> he's he's legitimately terrible in yeah. this, um, and I say that as someone who knows that he can act when he wants to. <laughs> yeah, like in um, Blended or Pixels, right? Mm. Or were you referring to such films as Funny People, <laughs> <laughs> Punch Struck Love? That's his good film. The one film, yeah. And he's going to be the new softy brother, so which should be fun. He's fine. He's fine in the Meyerowitz stories as well. Actually, never watched it. I wouldn't necessarily recommend watching it, but it's okay. Uh, one thing, one thing <laughs> that I kind of enjoyed as mm. well, just because it was so gratuitous, was the product placement for Amazon. There's like a a shot early in the film uh, where Sandler is shopping for a gift for his wife. Yeah, he's just buying. It's just a lingery close up of these Amazon gift cards. <laughs> And it is it is like obscenely lingering. It's yeah. like it's like product it's pornographic basically. But it's not like done as a joke about product placement or anything no. like that. It's literally just Hey, they do sort of mock um product placement in dialogue in a bit, or the idea of buying someone an Amazon gift card as a present in dialogue. But that does not alleviate the fact that the film is, you know, just being product placement for Netflix, or Amazon, which is a little insane, considering that Amazon is a Netflix competitor. Exactly, yeah, that's the funny thing. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd be happy if he made this type of thing as opposed to his usual type of thing. Yeah, I would too, because his usual thing is, like, offensive and annoying. Yeah. This is, like, bland and uninteresting, but it's a cut above for sure. Yeah, it feels like some work went into it. Yeah, not by him, but no, by, not by him. <laughs> the people by, he made by it. By Kyle Newacek. Okay, so do you have anything else you'd like to say about uh, Murder Mystery? Wait, wait, we haven't done our Sandler impressions yet. Too yeah. bad. You <laughs> <laughs> do the rest of the podcast. But it feels like, okay, yes, you can do uh, Dylan. We, you can do this Dylan movie. You have to do the entire thing in a Sandler impression. <laughs> <laughs> Moly, goddamn it, yes. <laughs> Alright, that's enough. I'm not feeling it. You sounded like a gremlin. <laughs> Why are you going? <clears throat> are you no, dying? Sometimes I can't do it. You do it. You, you try. <laughs> I can't do it. Okay. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> moving on. Moving on. <laughs> are you fucking psyched? Let's cue the great Bob Dylan Rolling Thunder song. The lost Rolling Thunder song that we've just unearthed exclusively for this podcast. We are laying fun to paradise, but filming us without the ghost of the plan. 
Joan is my double, we're made up like kiss Ginsburg's a roadie, I'm driving the van Rolling thunder, gotta roll like a camera In my soul, rolling thunder Gotta roll like a rounded piece of say you're an aging folk rock singer, wealthy and powerful beyond measure, adored by fans across the world, a survivor of the 60s and the desperation and fast-acting dilapidation of America in the early 70s. Let's say you're all that, but your marriage has just failed, and despite the fact that you've just released a duo of critically acclaimed albums, you don't seem to understand the nation that, where you live anymore. Well, what are you mm. to do? Well, if you're Bob Dylan, the answer seems to be to sweep up a bunch of fellow survivors other musicians, ex-paramours, magically inclined violinists, and acclaimed pedophile poet Allen Ginsberg <laughs> rode into buses, so what you even drive, and tore across the nation to try and make sense out of some senselessness. You pushed yourself, too. On a previous tour, one in England, you made a movie, a movie that eventually lost your blessing because you lost control over it, but a well-respected and iconic movie nonetheless. So you think, I'll make another. Now, say that you're the same rocker, but aged, like a strip of jerky under the sun, 40 years. You have this footage of a tour that some people are still left somewhat mystified by. What with the white face and the unfictional playlist? Let's say this, and also this. You are friends with one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. He's owed a, he's owed a favor by an internet streaming company because he's maybe going to get them an Oscar. And you say, hell, why not? Let's take this footage out of wherever it's been languishing, scrap together a few new interviews with people on the tour, including a typically obfuscatory interview from yourself. And voila, the mystery of your legend lives on. Only, that's not quite enough. So you get this filmmaker to add a bit more, throw in some touches of the unreal, the insertion of a, of a fictional Altman character here, the intimation of relations between, between you and a famous actress there, cute on-the-nose film clips everywhere, the alteration of some old footage everywhere, too. Coupled with the insertion of a curious framing device, the invention and insertion of a fictional, pretentious European wanker-cum-filmmaker, the result, a deliberate confusing of terms, a mixture of the real and the performative, a la your rarely screened Ronaldo and Clara, which is culled from the same concerts and events which provided the raw material for this film. What's real? What's fiction? And most importantly, my dear interlocutor come Dylan expert Hugh Hamilton, why should I give a shit? <laughs> okay, so first of all, I just wanted to take issue with something you said there. Oh, God. Is Bob Dylan, he's not friends with Scorsese? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I doubt he's friends with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> and I, I think he's aged well. I mean, certainly the hair. The hair is still still going strong. <laughs> the hair is fine. His face looks like jerky, though. But he's pretty old, so it's fine. <laughs> he's not that old. <laughs> but in, in contrast, uh, Joan Baez has aged amazingly well. Yeah, and they're about the same age. <laughs> they are the same age, yeah. And she looks 15 years younger than he is. <laughs> Easy. I mean, what, I was like, are the, were those interviews conducted for this movie? Um, anyway, so you're asking me to review the review. Yeah. Now, as you know, and as you've already told our listeners, I'm a Dylan tragic. So I'm basically the, the target audience for this. Yes. The film doesn't really have to work to get my attention because I'm already so invested in its subject. Yes. You've watched all two and a half hours or whatever, three hours... Five hours, six hours. Four hours. Rodolfo and Cara. 
I have, I have. And I feel it's important for me to, to state all this up front mm. um, to, to qualify my, my subsequent review of the review. Okay, so this film comprises, as you said, scraps of footage somehow left out of Dylan's four-hour-long disaster, <laughs> Ronaldo and Clara. Somehow left out of it. Obviously, it's been re-edit- re-edited and tinkered with under Scorsese's supervision. The new footage has been added, um, the fictional stuff and the non-fictional stuff. Yep. But it shares a lot of DNA with that particular film. And some sequences cross over. And you know what? It's worse than Ronaldo and Clara. <laughs> a movie that you rated five stars on Letterboxd. <laughs> yes, yes. To be fair, most people, for example, people like you, would have an easier time with this film than they would Ronaldo and Clara. <laughs> but I nonetheless contend that Ronaldo and Clara is significantly more interesting than this is. Uh-huh. So Scorsese talked about the fact that he didn't want to make a standard document of the tour and just, you know, chronicle exactly what happened. Yeah. That he wanted it to be something else, something that reflected Dylan's own penchant for myth-making. But that film already exists, and it's called fucking Ronaldo and Clara. (laughs) No one's going to fucking watch Ronaldo and Clara, though. (laughs) But it it still fucking exists. You know, look, as a Dylan fan... I, I made it through this easily enough, but there's no revelation. There's no special insight in its assembly of the footage. There are some captivating performances, at least to my tastes. Um, like there's a really good version of Isis and a sequence in which Joni Mitchell is uh, performing a new song on the tour van that I enjoyed. But but the the musical performances are far and away the most interesting parts of this film. And it, it, it's to the extent where I would have just preferred this to be a pure concert film. Uh, Even though, like, I'm no, no, I'm not a huge fan of concert films. Usually, they're not that interesting in and of themselves. But I think this probably would have been more interesting than the alternative that Scorsese has assembled. Um, before I go on, what did you make of it, sir? Well, I thought this was boring as shit. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed this not at all. <laughs> mm. I didn't expect you would when I was watching it. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I, you know what? Don't give a shit about Bob Dylan. <laughs> so it's already, already kind of a, a tough prospect to be like, yes, you are going to um, watch this extremely long film. <laughs> well, yeah, I, don't, I, I certainly don't think this justifies itself independent of its subject matter. Um, like, arguably, Don't Look Back does. Yeah. Don't Look Back is definitely a better film than this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is just like, I was just watching it and I was like, this is nothing to me. I don't feel anything. I'm just bored. I don't care. I was I was annoyed by all the stupid, like, film clips. I was annoyed by, like, the, uh, what's real? What's fake? I'm I'm this, this European f- Filmmaker, I, I, Dylan copied my way of smoking. Did you know that was fictional when you watched it? Yeah, I did. But I would have guessed as much, I think, because it's so like, I don't know, like the the bits where he's in are so like, they seem so clumsy. The 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 way that the dialogue is recorded sounds totally different than the the rest of the the footage, you know, or it's not matched well to the um the rest of the audio. The stuff with like Sharon said I thought was especially uh clumsily done. 
Mm. I, I I wasn't sure exactly what he was doing, and I, I wasn't, and I was like, "Is this guy a real director that that uh, was involved in this?" Because I didn't know that much about. No, I I looked him up after the fact. Yeah, and and so it's it's I think for most people, because it's not really telegraphed in the the text itself, if we can call this a text, which it's yeah. not, it's a film. <laughs> <laughs> like you tell context in the academic sense. Yeah. It, it, because it's not actually telegraphed in the film as fiction. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, casual fans, they will discover this after the fact that it was something that Scorsese has added to it. Yes. And the, and and um, you know, I guess that's Scorsese att- attempt at capturing Dylan's impish spirit and his you know refusal to tell the truth or answer direct questions and that that kind of stuff and and the myth making. But like, I mean. When you discover it, it's, it just feels kind of empty and annoying, and it's it doesn't add anything to this film. And no, it makes it worse if anything. Yeah, and you know I usually quite like uh, Scorsese, but not here. His choices for this film, I think, were poor. I mean, there's one exception which I'll get to, but among the the backstage material, so the stuff that isn't just filming a performance, there are a couple of okay bits, mm-hmm. uh, and and. You need more than a couple when the film is like two and a half hours long. Yeah, <laughs> like th- there's there's quite a funny section. Uh, this is early on, in which a young uh, woman has this sort of nonsensical conversation with Bob Dylan. Yeah, who has like this amphetamine shake while he's speaking most of the time. Yeah, yeah. And then um, when like a friend later asks the woman what Bob Dylan was asking her about. She's like she tries to relay the conversation. He's like, oh, he, he spoke about marriage, but. Not the normal marriage. He spoke about mental marriage. And I just, that was so stupid that I kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. And there's a, there's a funny bit where Patty Smith is um, explaining to a rather patient Dylan that she used to imagine he was her boyfriend or something. Oh, yeah. Kind of a weird thing to tell someone. And, and also the fact that at one point, as you said, it wasn't just a review of musicians on the road. No. They also took along... Uh, poets such as Allen Ginsberg, um, but then it comes to a point where they keep cutting the amount of uh, space in the show for poetry reading yep. until they essentially become roadies. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was funny. <laughs> that was funny, but I mean, mostly the the world of this tour uh, outside the performances just seems like a hell of hangers on. Yeah, you know, and uh, it wasn't particularly enjoyable to spend time in that uh, in that scenario. No. The the PR description of this film early on was that it was part fever dream. Yeah. And uh, that, to me, after watching this film, seems like code for... We don't really have a through line here. <laughs> we've, just, <laughs> well, we've just assembled some, some offcuts. That seems, like, that seems kind of like what the, the tour was like, so, you know? The one choice that Scorsese made with this film that I think was... Uh, genuinely interesting mm-hmm. was the the text overlays at the end of every single concert Dylan has performed up to the present year, mm-hmm. which I found weirdly poignant. Yeah, it did make me feel like Jesus Christ! Like, does this guy have any interior life at all? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the interesting thing. So, since 1988, he spent the majority of every year on the road. Like, holy shit! So the, the, sc- the whole screen fills with dates and performances, and it does it does connect with a moment in the documentary. I guess this is the only 
proper through line that they manage where Ruben Carter hurricane mm. talks about the fact that he always um, thought Dylan was looking for something, constantly searching for something in his life. I thought that part was enjoyable enough. Definitely made me respect Dylan a little bit more, like already that. And that and that kind of seems to to tie in with his dogged determination to just constantly tour. I mean, he could have stopped touring in 1988, and in real terms, he'd be none the poorer. No, I mean, he's made a shitload of money from touring, but. He has a shitload of money. Yeah, he doesn't, like doesn't need, really he doesn't need more money. <laughs> no, no. Or at least he doesn't have to tour as often as he does. Yeah. But it's like he's resigned himself to the fact that performing these songs live around the world... That's all that matters. Is the, well, it's the, maybe it's the closest thing he's going to get to finding what he's looking for. Maybe, yeah. And, um, yeah, when you look at all these dates and locations and work out the logistics of it... You realize like he's effectively homeless. His entire life is hotel rooms. Yeah, it is kind of it is kind of sad for sure. And like I guess occasionally he'll stop to weld a gate or taste test his whiskey. Does he have a whiskey? He does. <laughs> the rest of the time he's away, no family, no house. He's just doing this, and wow. uh, I found that kind of moving in a way. Um, but that was the only part of this film that connected. Have you seen you seen him live before, right? Yeah, I've seen him once. Mm. It was very good, actually. He did 84 shows last year. Yep. Wow. And he's, he's 70, motherfucking eight years old. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. He probably will just collapse on stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, I don't know if I have a lot to say about this movie. I didn't really, it was not engaging. That's it's not the, good. Some of the performances were fine, I guess, but I don't know. Yeah, the performances were good. I don't really like the music that much, so, you know. <laughs> I like that song about drinking a cup of coffee or whatever. Yeah, one more cup of coffee. Yeah, good song. It's okay. You know, sometimes when I've been watching all these fucking Dylan movies, I'm kind of like, I don't even understand the appeal of what people see in him, you know? And But watching the concert footage of this, I can understand it a little better. Because he did seem to be, like, an incredibly charismatic performer. And in fact, he seems, like, way more alive on the stage than he does in either the, like, present-day interview or, like, the footage of him just, like, wandering around, too. Anyway, uh, yeah, so do you want to fucking talk any more about... Uh... No, I mean, I, I think the most damning thing I can say about this is, as I said, I'm a, I'm a huge Dylan fan. I found this dull, really dull, except for the performances. Yeah, well, there you go. Well, two films we kind of agree on. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think what's good is that now you've seen all the Dylan films, and uh, <laughs> I mean, hopefully there's no more that get as like a product release like this, so we never have to talk about it ever again. <laughs> Until I mean, I'll die at some point, and you'll be like, "Oh man, Dylan died." I'll be like, "Okay," and then that'll be it. <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be genuinely distraught. <laughs> really, he's so old at this point. Oh no, we have to do Hearts on Fire or whatever it's called. <laughs> okay, I'll, I will watch that because the two gifts of that uh, that I've seen are beautiful. Uh, yeah, <laughs> both him slappy, you know, Rupert Everett, and then him <laughs> zipping his pants up. <laughs> <laughs> what is that though? Is it just like a? I don't understand what. It's a musical. It's a musical. Is it a movie? Yeah, it's a movie, but it's a musical. Wow. Directed by Richard Marquand. I think I already had this revelation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Maybe I'll watch this. It was written by Joe Estrauss. Who's that? <laughs> the guy who wrote uh, Basic Instinct and uh, Jane. Oh and, really? Yeah, and Showgirls. <laughs> wow. It's it has never been released on DVD. 
I'm sure there's like a rip of it online somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously. Let's check in with the box office. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. Uh, so the number one movie in both countries on the count of three. Three, two, one. Man in Black International $30,000. All right, movie Bonus features. particular order or the order that I've got written down in my little document Uh, I rewatched the movie Spider-Man Homecoming mm. outside of the context of a plane your favorite Marvel Cinematic Universe film of all time Um, just to see if it was a 4 star or 3.5 star film probably a 3.5 star film (laughs) so the the pinnacle of Marvel to me is is 3.5 stars but that seems about right truthfully that that was only a secondary concern mm. the primary reason that i rewatched the film spider-man homecoming is because because earlier in the day uh-huh. i had purchased a bag of spider-man far from home tie-in doritos <laughs> what i purchased a bag of those earlier today <laughs> And, and the flavor of which was uh, labeled as spider spice. <laughs> and, you know, I, I brought that home and I wanted to eat it in an appropriate context. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I've I got to watch Spider-Man while I'm eating these spider spice Doritos. Mm-hmm. So I was tucking into my tie-in Doritos. You, you put a napkin in your shirt collar. And I was eating these Doritos, which were not particularly pleasant. Mm. And I get to the scene in the film where Tom Holland as uh, Spider-Man is hanging from the ceiling in his room mm-hmm. and he reaches down and he grabs a handful of Doritos <laughs> and the bag is gratuitously dis- displayed for the camera. Wow. And I look down at my bag of spider Spice Doritos and I feel like such a corporate mark. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like just a loser. <laughs> well, Hugh... I'm happily, happy to say that you are a loser. <laughs> but but I did take consolation from the fact that I was watching Homecoming via an illegal stream. So oh. it wasn't are You want to admit seller. that you're breaking the law live on the podcast? Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm happy to admit I'm breaking the law well. on this podcast because if the feds listen to this, at least we'll have a listener. <laughs> That's 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 a trade-off I'm willing to make. <laughs> the feds are better than no one. Yes, exactly. I watched a film called The Endless. Mm, I kind of wanted to watch that, actually. uh, Which comes from filmmaking duo Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, uh, both of whom also star. So this is a continuation of an earlier film, uh, Resolution, which I haven't seen. Mm. I've heard good things about that, too, I think. Yeah, they're they're, they're supposed to be good. Um, And I do always appreciate when a film associated with like a special effects-heavy genre like sci-fi and horror can get by largely on the strength of its ideas using just real locations and relatively modest means. Sure, sure. uh, Which is what this does. So this is like a Lovecraft indebted story. And I really like the premise. So it's it, they, the two filmmakers play these two brothers who, when they were young, they escaped a UFO death cult. Mm. 
and then they receive like a, a DV tape that that shows that the cult is still around all these years later, and they didn't actually go ahead and kill themselves, mm. or at least not yet. So they decide to return to the cult, and then it uh, gets weirder from there. And they both turn in convincing performances. And uh, I thought it was going to get to the point that a lot of these type of films get to where it's initially intriguing and absorbing and there's this mystery and then ultimately that's all superseded by survival horror or something. Like once the threat is revealed, they then have to escape the cult or whatever. But that actually never happens here. Mm. Not that there isn't uh, life and death stuff and survival horror a little bit, but... It doesn't uh, turn that corner and become a, a slog or anything like that. I thought it was actually well done. So I would recommend that. Well, apparently they have another film that's coming out this year. There we go. I also rewatched uh, Police Story 3, Super Cop. Mm. So after Jackie Chan had directed the first two, he uh, cedes control to Stanley Tong. Mm-hmm. And the film does have a slightly different feel. There's more emph- emphasis on flashy gunplay. So I definitely prefer the, the tone of the first two. Um, but this film does have two things going for it. The first is the addition of Michelle Yeoh as uh, a co-star. And secondly, it has one of the greatest uh, climactic action sequences, I think, in all cinema. Wow. Makes even the action in the excellent Mission Impossible Fallout feel a bit limp. So it's worth it just for that. Finally, last one I watched was a little film called Chef. Um, So this this film feels very self-indulgent. So it was a passion project for Iron Man director John Favreau, Mm. who writes, directs and stars... And not only does he star, but he does his own cooking stunts as well. Uh huh. So obviously cooking is a passion for him. He wants to do a project about cooking, wants to star in it, wants to make it. And he rings in favours from his celebrity friends. So we get random appearances from like Dustin Hoffman, mm. Oliver Platt, Robert Downey Jr., of course. Of course. And most, a little creepily, Scarlett Johansson mm. uh, as a restaurant hostess who, it's implied, had a fling with Favreau's character. (laughs) Mm. Um, Mercilessly, they don't show us anything in which they actually uh, kiss or something, but it's still kind of gross. And this film also feels like it was partly subsidised by Twitter. Mm. Whole swathes of this film take place on Twitter, effectively. (laughs) So his son shows him how to set up an account... We see, you know, when you know when you're trying to uh, visualize something boring, like something that's happening on a phone or a computer yeah. screen. Often directors will choose to like impose the window in the scene, so we can see what's happening while they're fiddling with their phone. So we get so many shots of like the Twitter window appear on the screen in to to um, emphasize what everyone's doing on their phones, with the Twitter logo prominently displayed within that window. Mm-hmm over and over and over again in this film. So I'm just wondering how much money they uh, they gave him. $12. And this has uh, a really ludicrous story arc. Mm-hmm. So it obviously has some arc. It has to start or it has to get to a low point and then turn around. So uh, it starts off with the titular chef getting a bad review 
having a, a meltdown in public and seemingly ruining his career, right? Mm. And to top it off, he's divorced from his wife uh, and he's a bad father to his son. He's kind of a shitty guy. That's, that's the initial act of the film. But then it turns around, he gets a food truck, he rediscovers the joy of cooking, he uh, bonds with his son, and the critic who gave him that bad review, the one he publicly berated in his restaurant, decides to bankroll a new venture off the back of his delicious food truck food. So he gets reinstated as a top-end chef in a restaurant, gets to do what he wants, and most inexplicably of all, he gets back together with his ex-wife. Uh-huh. So a little bit of wish fulfillment for... Uh... Exactly, yeah. But they, they don't establish, first of all, why they even got divorced, but presumably it was because he was a dick and a shitty father. Nor do they show any reason why she should change her mind about being with him, aside from the fact that he's you know belatedly bonded with their son. So all the women in the film, or at least the two women in the film, Scarlett Johansson and his uh, ex-wife are just unfailingly supportive of him mm. for some reason. And um, they look at him in awe and also kind of paternalistically um, instead of really taking him to task for being a shitty guy. Well, Hugh, he is a man. Anyway, it sucks, but it's kind of difficult to outright hate. Mm. And I do like that it portrays the world of a chef a lot more authentically than most films do. Mm. So I like cooking shows and stuff, so I kind of like that aspect of it, but mm-hmm. it's an odd film. Well, I'll probably watch it at some point. But the reason I watched it was because I was enjoying the spin-off Netflix show <laughs> called The Chef Show, uh-huh. um, in which uh, John Favreau and the guy who taught him cooking for the film mm. host random celebrities on a food truck and cook stuff, which is enjoyable. Even if Gwyneth Paltrow is in it and they promote goop. Your favorite lifestyle brand? That's right. Your turn. I watched a number of films. Wow. I know. Mm. Fuck you eating. Some pretzels covered in dark chocolate. Somebody want... Yeah. Sorry. No, keep on going. Some pretzels covered in dark chocolate. No, no, no. Some no, pretzels covered no, no. in dark it's chocolate. It's the entire song, you. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. Keep on she going. was acting kind of no, no, dumb no, with no, a you, finger you, and a thumb in the shape you, of an L on you, her forehead. You. you asked? No, you, you got the line wrong. Did I? Yeah. Go. She was looking kind of dumb. Sing it in context. She was looking kind no, no, of like dumb. No, no, from like the, from the start, oh, okay. from the top. Somebody once told me the world. Oh, you got to hit the body harder than that. Somebody once told me the world was kind of rubby. I ate the sharpest tool in the shed. She was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead. Well, the years start coming and they don't stop coming. I don't, I don't remember the last letter X. So the first film I watched for uh, bonus features is a 
short film that Jacques Demy made called Le Luxure or Lust or Wetchery, <clears throat> which he made as part of the Seven Deadly Sins compilation film, which had uh, mm-hmm. con- contributions from a number of pretty famous French directors like uh, <clears throat> Claude Chabrol and uh, Jean-Louis Godard and Roger Vadim. And it's kind of this like short little, uh, almost like a jokish uh, thing about lust and um, how this <laughs> basically is this like alpha Chad like dude is like wandering the, he's wandering down the street just like forty with girls had this strange relationship to lust where uh, when he was a child he assumed that the luxury actually meant luxury and not lust so he was confused for that reason it's okay it's like a solid enough film it's only like ten minutes so. You know, mm-hmm. hard to judge it too harshly one way or the other. Um, and then I watched uh, Bay of Angels, another Jacques Demy film. Watched a lot of Jacques Demy films, so you probably should get used to that. Um, which is a uh, film about um, about this man, this young man who's like sick of his office job and starts gambling on like this like shitty French casino, and then he uh, goes down to the Riviera in order to win some money and lighten and enliven his life and then he gets sucked into the thrall of this woman who's a passionate gambling addict um and it's really good i enjoyed it cool <laughs> that's some good uh, talking words right good talking um yeah, is it you. a musical or is it just more like Lola? No. it's uh it's actually less because Lola at least has like some musical sequences you know yeah and in this film all the music is non-diagenic I just use for like emphasis. Yeah, okay. um, but it's it's composed by the same guy did Lola and then you know a lot of Jacques Demy's films. So, um, I mean, it's very. It almost reminds me of like a Cassavetti's film in a way. It's all about these. Even like, though neither of us have seen a Cassavetti's film. Yeah, exactly. It reminds <laughs> me of the idea of a Cassavetti's film. <laughs> uh, then I watched the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which I believe you've talked about on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just basically this great sort of anti-romantic romantic film. Uh, it's just sad and wonderful and has this uh, magical and beautiful quality to it. Um, I think you would agree. Yeah. And then Good I watched stuff. a television documentary called Once Upon a Time, uh, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which was okay. Um, it had some interesting tidbits about the production, like the fact that... Uh, I did. I did not know that the cast did not provide their own singing voices. For instance, none of them. None of them did. Yeah, it was all dubbed in post. Wow! And they they actually were did a lot of lip syncing on set to the like songs that had already been like sung by other people, which sounds like a complete nightmare. <laughs> wow. Okay, I did not know that. Yeah, but a lot of it is just sort of like you know standard, uh, you know. Remember it's documentary like, oh yes, I remember making that film. It was the greatest film, you know that sort of stuff, uh, which is not that interesting. Uh, and it does contain the rather dubious claim that uh, <laughs> Demi liked to have included like a lot of like um, stupid and simplistic women in his films, which I thought was a little strange. Hmm. Uh, and it doesn't really track with the movies of his that I've watched anyway. So I was a little little skeptical of that for that reason. And they have some like cock and Amy interview that they include that sort of felt feels like it was edited to make their match their point. Uh, so didn't really care for that that much. Just felt like they're trying to be like, a little like controversial for no reason. But and then I watched an absolutely excruciating film, uh, which is Jim Jarmusch. The young girls of Rochefort. 
No, no. It's a film that you've been dying to watch, if memory serves. Huh? Uh, called The Dead Don't Die, which is basically this, like, sub-Lynchian, like, shitty, unfunny meta-zombie comedy made by, like, a... Like, I was joking with my friend after we watched it. It felt like Jim Jarmusch had joined, like, the hashtag Twitter resistance against Trump. <laughs> this is this Steve Buscemi character who has, like, a Trump hat that says, Make America White Again. And the yeah. movie, like, literally ends with all these, like, brown kids, like, be, being the only survivors. And it's like, oh, oh, my God, the brown teenagers are going to inherit the earth. <laughs> so it's a little, it was pretty cringy in that regard. It's also just, like, really unfunny and boring so and Tilda Swinton why did you call it sub-Lynchian because it it like really rips off which is like it takes place in the small town there's like a bunch of like wacky characters you know uh the the sort of middle America small town yeah stuff but I mean it feels you know that sounds sounds like sort of like an easy like oh you know you're saying that because it says but this definitely feels more in common like that like there's a lot of jokes that feel sort of deadpan in the way that Lynch can't be you know yeah, yeah. Especially okay. regarding, like, police officers and, like, violence and that sort of stuff. And then uh, I was reading an interview with Jarmusch after I watched this where he was like, oh, Twin Peaks The Return is the best, you know, film thing that's ever come out, that's come out so far in the 21st century. I was like, yeah, I can see that, buddy. I can see that. I can see what you're doing. <laughs> it was also shot by the guy who shot Blue Velvet, so, you know. Mm, okay. Uh, and there's, there seemed to be some, like, more deliberate nods as well. Um, but basically, it's it's really a, a slog to get through. Um I I did not enjoy it whatsoever. So, though it it does end in one of the funniest things I've seen in my entire life, which is uh, should, do you want me to spoil it? Do you care? Yeah, I don't care. So, um, there's a recurring character, sort of like the film's narrator, who's played by uh, Tom Waits in a um, a uh, return, a um, what do you call it? A reprising reprisal. That's it. A reprisal of his role from um, uh, uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. As a, a weirdo, uh, bearded, rambly uh, outdoorsman, uh, who at the end of the film is like giving this closing monologue about how like people are so addicted to their material goods and their cell phones, and there's this line where he's like, "We sold our souls out for our designer jeans and our Nintendo Game Boys," which made me burst out laughing to the point where I was almost like pissing myself in the theater because it was so funny to me. Mm. That that Game Boy was like the the system of choice, you know. So this is like weird, outdated reference. Um, but uh, yes, there is a, is is a great scene where the film just like cuts to the zombies doing things that they would have done in their in their previous life, like looking for a cell phone signal. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Why? You've already persuaded me to watch it. It's I. You know what? Uh, I'd like to say murder mystery and. Um, it's definitely a film that I I disliked more than either of the two films that we watched today, right? Yeah. But it's one that I would definitely recommend people watch over those two films. Mm. It's almost like worth seeing to see how bad it is. Uh, then I rewatched The Young Girls of Russia for it, which is a great film. I think I prefer that to Umbrellas, mm. personally. I think I like them both equally. <laughs> And they work on sort of a different register, but they have sort of similar feelings towards romantic love, I think. Hmm. Um, but I enjoy the out-and-out pessimism of Umbrellas a little bit more, I think, as I've gotten older and more bitter with the world. 
It should be the reverse because you're the one in a loving relationship and I'm not. Yeah, exactly. But no. Uh, then I watched Agnes Varda's The Young Girls Turn 25, which is a documentary that sort of um, was a record of this celebration held by the city of Rochefort uh, 25 years after the making of the film, uh, which is pretty fascinating um, and has some, you know, kind of, there's this great shot of Catherine Deneuve um, because, you know, a lot of people who worked on that film were, were dead at the point when it turned 25, <laughs> including Jacques Demy and also um, Francois uh, Delac, I think that's her name, who is uh, Catherine Deneuve's sister. Mm-hmm. He, like, died yeah. not that long after the film was made. Um, so it's She's been a in... Like, um, uh, she is in That Man from Rio. Yeah. Your favorite film of all time. Yeah. Big fan. Um... But yeah, she died in a uh, accident or some sort. And uh, so there's this great scene where Catherine Deneuve's like, oh, I hope that I won't let my emotions uh, get the better of me. That's this, this, this really movie shot where like the camera holds on her face like way longer than you expect it to. Like sort of the, like the pretense of like being happy just like sort of leaves her face. And it's just this like really human and like exhausting moment. It is sort of like really instructive to watch this so close to um, that other documentary about the Umbrellas of Stripport, which kind of like lacks a personal touch for this is like sort of seeded with Varda's own interests and stuff. Um, I mean, it does suffer somewhat from, you know, the standard like celebratory quality towards the film, Mm. which is a film that, you know, deserves to be celebrated, to be sure. But at the same time, it's like, it's not that interesting of a, a thing to experience for 70 minutes when people are just like sucking its dick. Um, but it does have <laughs> it does have some interesting bits where like they track down like people who worked on like as extras and stuff like that and just and it, it almost seems more interested in how these people have lived their lives and how the film has affected all these random residents of Rochefort than it is in the film itself. So definitely worth a watch, I think. I I watched one more uh, Jacques Demy film and I'm going to watch another one tomorrow because I started it this morning. Because I have a few hours before I go to work that I like to watch movies during, and I started watching Donkey Skin this morning. I didn't finish it. Um, Do you now love the Love Witch? Uh, uh, well, I'll tell you a film that I do love, which is Model Shop, Demi's one American film. But not his only English language film, but his one American film. So it's a, he made an American film, did he? Called Model Shop. He did, called Model Shop. Uh, it's pretty hard to track down. I had to buy like a $30 Blu-ray to watch it, actually. <laughs> Um, but I think it's just really invigorating. It, it, it's sort of like a, it feels both like distinctly, I don't know, like there's, there's something about it that really like clarifies sort of his intentions in some of the other films, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because it has this like play of artifice and documentary, like a lot of his films do to some degree. Um, but this one sort of like foregrounds it because a lot of it is just Gary Lockwood just like driving around LA. Um, sort of like Vertigo style, I guess, until he runs into Lola from Lola. And then who's working at a model shop, which is like this basically this sort of pervy, like porn-esque thing where men can pay money to photograph women. I thought Lola was murdered in the young girls of Rochefort. No, man. What are you talking about? No, Lola Lola is the dancer who gets murdered in the young girls of Rochefort. He's like a former dancer. It's a reference to the Blue Angel. Anyway, um, but it's it's this great sort of like because you know Lola is with this sort of like um, almost like romantic spectacle thing that has like a touch of darkness, but isn't quite. I don't know. It's not. It's it definitely has a romantic sheen to it, right? 
Mm-hmm. But uh, Model Shop really quick clears it up real fast, which I like. It's probably the most like anti-romantic film of, of his that I've seen, uh, and I think it's really brilliant. And it also sort of serves as a sequel to um, uh, uh, Bay of Angels as well, actually. Um, but I, I really loved it a lot. Uh, and I thought Gary Lockwood, who I you know pretty much only know from, from uh, TV shows and movies where he is in a spaceship, because uh, he's in an episode of Star Trek. <laughs> Uh, gives it gives a quite commanding performance, and it's almost a shame that he wasn't in more things. Um, but it's a great sort of downer of a film, I think. So definitely worth a watch. If you can check it down. Uh, and then the final film I watched was a Chinese film directed by Zhang Yimou called Shadow, which I thought was like so boring, and I didn't give it, couldn't care like any less about it for the first like thirty minutes, which it's all, it's all this like stupid like court intrigue and like just boring dialogue, and who cares, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it sort of develops into this like one of the most fluid and <laughs> funny and well choreographed like wuxia films that I've seen in my entire life. So <laughs> pretty great stuff. <laughs> which all it all centers around this fighting style, which utilizes an umbrella <laughs> to fight against. People with like Chinese style like uh, swords, okay, uh, which is really enjoyable and definitely worth checking down if it comes out near you. Um, which is it's I think it's adapted from like the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, I think. It's these like two Warring Kingdoms, or whatever. It's like pretty boilerplate stuff, um, but the legendary commander of one of the cities that's like the center of the film has a. Uh, basically replaced himself as he was wounded in the in the previous conflict with a double who looks exactly like him uh, and he's been trained to like act exactly like him too uh, since he was a child and I don't know it just sort of is like a bunch of nonsense but it's really enjoyable so <laughs> except for the first like you know 30 minutes which my friend really enjoyed so maybe I just was tired or something um, but yeah I don't know good stuff <laughs> 